Hello, hello. It's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. Today, I'm here with Dr. Raghuram Srinivas. Raghu, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Jacob. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And folks, if you uh, just have a moment, I'd really appreciate it if you would like, comment, subscribe, share, review, all the things. Really helps me out and helps me grow the podcast. So thank you in advance for that. Well, Raghu, can you tell us about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. First of all, uh, thank you, Jacob, for having me here. So I've been a avid listener of your podcast. I just love the content that's shared here. And I know it's a great source of learning for me as well. So that's it. I'm very excited to be here. There's got to be a question. Right now, let's start with where I am and then maybe uh, peel some layers back. So right now, I am with Metric Stream. I'm the head of products and innovations here at Metric Stream. Now, Metric Stream for folks in the GRC world should be pretty familiar with what we do. We are a product technology company specializing in the GRC domain. In my role at Metric Stream, I am responsible for the product strategy and the product roadmap across our suite of GRC products. Well, I started back in the day as a Java developer or a Java programmer back when uh, Sun Microsystems was a thing and you, know, you had all those Sun certified Java professionals and so on and so forth. So that's how I started my career. And over the course of a natural progression for anybody in their professional life, I've been fortunate enough to work with some really reputed brands like IBM, KPMG, JP Morgan Chase. And here I am today at Metric Stream. I was with IBM for the longest time in my professional career thus far. And at IBM, I was with the Watson Group. If you recall, about 10, 12 years back, Watson was one of the first commercially available AI tools that IBM had released. I was a part of the Watson Group. And when I was with the Watson Group, I learned how to use an AI system. But then as I was working, trying to solve some real-world use cases in the finance and healthcare domain with Watson, I realized very quickly that this was a vast domain in itself, right, which was this AI machine learning. So I knew to some extent how to use the Watson system, an AI system, but I didn't know how it was built. So that kind of motivated me to get into more academic areas of learning a bit more about uh, machine learning, AI, so on and so forth. So that led me into uh, getting my master's in data sciences. And the field just fascinated me so much that I just stayed along. And I ended up getting a PhD in the domain as well. So I would say uh, this has been my journey so far, a bit of academic background and also industry experience, which I guess serves me pretty well in my current role. Wow. Well, that's, that's amazing. Can you talk to us about the history of artificial intelligence and how long has it been around and what are its different forms? So that question becomes important today, given all the uh, hype that we see about artificial intelligence, large language models, so on and so forth. But it's interesting to look at the history of how these language tasks have also evolved over time. In fact, there was an article in BBC a little while ago which actually traced when some of these early language tasks came about. And apparently, right back in the Cold War days, there used to be uh, systems that were developed that were able to translate between Russian to English or vice versa. Right? So granted, some of those systems back in the 50s and the 60s were mostly rules-based. But then over a period of all these years, there's been tremendous advancements in for the technology and the complexity of these algorithms that are being developed. And just in the last 10 years, right, with just the ability to run some of these large tasks, especially with the GPUs, the affordability of programmers and companies to be able to run these large heavy-duty tasks on large data sets has become much easier, So, which has obviously accelerated the growth of AI. So you would see techniques like machine learning, techniques like deep learning, and today we are at generative AI and large language models. 
So I'd say there's been an evolution of these techniques over the period of many years. And over the last few years, just the affordability of the technology, underlying technology to run these programs has become so easy and so affordable for programmers that they are able to innovate much faster in this domain. That's very interesting. Talk to us about machine learning and can you give us an example of what that might look like? So machine learning, essentially, you know, as the word ability of machines to be able to perform certain tasks which involve predicting outputs, given a set of inputs or looking at data, mostly structured data and trying to find patterns among data. Now, this is how machine learning started. Now, techniques are being used around, you know, regression, but some of these techniques around regression have existed in the statistics land for a long time already. Then over the period of the last 20, 25 years, there have been advancements in this field as well, right? So with these bagging and boosting methods, you would hear terms like a random forest or a boosted tree, so on and so forth. Now, these kind of spurred on the uh, growth in the field of machine learning. And then came the concept of uh, deep learning, which uh, again took the concept of machine learning a step further. Whereas in machine learning, for the most part, there was an assumption of linearity between the relation of the input to the output. The concepts of deep learning and neural networks broke some of those assumptions and the boundaries, right? So they were able to also find patterns between input to output, even though some of the relationships were nonlinear, innate abilities of the system to be able to identify those patterns. That spurred on the growth in these techniques around deep learning and neural networks, which today are the foundations for some of the gen large language models that we see in use. That's really fascinating. Now, can you talk to us about large language models? Most people are familiar with ChatGPT these days. Can you tell us about large language models and maybe some of the key terms and how it actually works? So again, you know, to get into the nitty-gritties of how large language models work, is going to take a session in itself, right? But let's just try <laughs> to keep it short here. Now, as the name itself suggests, right? Large language models, so they've got to do something with language. So these are models that are built to perform some generic language tasks, tasks like text summarization or tasks like text generation or text classification, if you will. And these are trained on large corpus of data. And these are also large in the way they are built. There is just billions of parameters that these models actually involve. And these billions of parameters get trained on this large corpus of data. These are some key elements that constitute what makes up a large language model. But then an innate ability of uh, LLMs is that with very little data, you could actually specialize it to learn specific domains like a finance or retail or healthcare or what have you. Now, do you think that there is a very good LLM version out there? Of course, we hear a lot about GPT-4. Is there a more advanced model available today? Well, so GPT-4 for sure is uh, an advanced model that's out there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to say whether there was this model that's better than the others. Yes, there is a lot of uh, documentation that gets released and technical specifications that get released with these models. But ultimately, mm -hmm. what is good or what meets the purpose of a particular domain just depends totally on the do domain and the kind of tasks that uh, these uh, models are able to perform. The okay. judge of something is good or not is left to the uh, consumers of these models and yeah. depends totally on the tasks that uh, they're trying to perform with these models. Okay, thank you for that. Let's talk about how... AI is impacting the risk marketplace because as end users, people are very excited about this. Uh, we think that these tools can automate some of our manual process, like taking meeting minutes and maybe even uh, providing some analysis context. But 
there is a whole cybersecurity aspect to this. Can you talk about how it will impact the risk marketplace and how it is, even is today? Now, from where we stand, our vantage point, right, being a premier product technology company, having the fortune of interacting with some of the large enterprises right, across multiple domains, we do see a lot of interest and inquiries about how AI can play a role in the GRC space. Now, we look at this in two flavors. Right? So one is AI for GRC, which is how can we use AI techniques and bring them into the current GRC processes and make them more robust, comprehensive, more efficient. And we also looked at the flip of this, right, which is GRC for AI. Now, given the mass interest in uh, AI, the democratization of AI that has happened, especially with ChatGPT, there's no question that companies, the CISOs, are constantly worried, right, in terms of the kind of interaction that employees of their companies are having with these AI systems like ChatGPT. There is a need for AI governance also to kick in. So that also obviously is a part of GRC. So like I said, now we look at AI in two forms, which is AI for GRC and GRC for AI. Now, when it comes to some of these traditional elements of enterprise or operational risk management, we see there are several applications of AI. Over the years, a lot of data has built up in enterprises and risk analysts and risk managers are always looking to unearth patterns, right? That would advise them of what is that risk that is lurking out there that they may have missed. Now, obviously, this is an area where AI can come in and do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of data analysis and finding those hidden patterns. Now, we've also seen GRC for most companies is a cost center. So they do want to be efficient in the GRC operations. So which is where if there are elements of a GRC workflow, can those be automated by means of AI? So we see such applications as well, right, where AI can be used to make the whole process of GRC risk assessment or a control test more autonomous and more cognitive in nature. So we see mm -hmm. such use cases play out. And on the flip side, we also see the need for enterprises to ensure there is a robust AI governance. There are frameworks that they are able to implement and put in place within their companies that provide standards in terms of how different lines of businesses can engage with AI models, how they can evaluate how these AI models are functioning and how they can keep track on an ongoing basis, the performance, the biases, so on and so forth of the AI models. So this again, now I'd say is how I see the market play out and the interest in AI play out in the GRC space. Well, that's really fascinating. I think that there are so many ways that AI can benefit GRC. Just thinking about it from a risk standpoint and providing context uh, for vulnerability assessments, I, I think there's a huge amount of benefit that we can get from these tools. Absolutely, Jacob. You do bring up a good point, especially on the cyber side. You know, we see AI and especially a generative AI can be used both by the security personnel to uh, strengthen their defenses. And we also see hackers exploiting these AI systems out there. Now, in fact, the reports out there, right, in terms of how generative AI can be used to create novel phishing emails. Mm -hmm. Now, just imagine, right, the scale at which these emails can now be generated by hackers has multiplied by many factors because of generative AI. There is also the Worm GPT system that, that was trained. And from the reports that we read about Worm GPT, it looks like you know it was actually trained on malware data. And it could apparently create malware software in a matter of a few minutes. So that, and it was in fact reported that 
chat gpt had some guard rails but worm gpt was trained without any guard rails right? so, mm-hmm. so just imagine the impact these can have so obviously we see that hackers can have field day with technologies like these especially with the ability to churn out malware or phishing emails at rapid scale than what people have done before but at the same time we also see the security personnel the traditional red and blue teams employ a generative ai for their own security exercises as well so there are abilities to employ these tools on both sides of the coin here yeah that's definitely right i think those are all great points can you talk to us about the importance of a compliance culture within an organization a very important point you bring up right uh, so firms need to have a good compliance culture and what i mean by that is the firms need to understand exactly the regulations that they need to be compliant with not only should select personnel within the firm understand it but they also need to democratize this knowledge among their employee base and that goes back to ensuring that there are good policies in place these policies are understood easily by their employees and these policies are adhered to by their employees but i also believe this compliance culture is the bare minimum companies have to have right so again these are regulations companies have to follow but what i feel is more important is for companies to have a risk first mindset right which mm-hmm. allows them to operate at a much higher level to identify that yes they are compliant they are doing the bare basics that is necessary to be compliant to regulations but they also operate at a higher level of uh, having a risk first mindset where they know what are all those risks that could be out there and how they can train their employees to also recognize and act on risks to alleviate the harmful effect of risks I appreciate that because the way I view it is compliance is a way to actually implement true security because a lot of companies, they're just not going to make an investment unless they're forced to by uh, compliance regulations and all that stuff. So for us security folks, that's a great opportunity to not only, as you said, meet the minimum standards of compliance, but also do the right thing and go beyond checking the boxes and implement true security that risk-first mindset, as you said. Precisely, Jacob. That's an excellent point you made. Yes. Now, can you talk to us about cyber risk in 2023 and beyond? What should we keep an eye out for? Absolutely. And that's a very important uh, question, right? And it's an existential question for cybersecurity professionals to address. And we've seen the kind of widespread ramifications that these have. So I would say to your point, yes, uh, the cyber risk in 2023, I would say the risk levels are much elevated given some of these recent events that we've seen and some of the players that are involved in uh, affecting such large scale damage. Now add to that the kind of technologies that are out there as well. What we just covered was the intent of people to do harm. Then the ability to do harm is also is quite within reach of people now we go back to those examples of chat gpt or generative ai and how it could be misused by hackers to generate malware or to generate phishing emails so on and so forth so this also adds right to the ability of the hackers to do real harm to individuals to organizations and we're also seeing of late a lot of attacks happening on the state and government offices as well right and i think that critical infrastructure is going to be key as well and just hardening that against attacks cuz as we've recently seen that that is definitely a part of warfare going forward anything else you'd like to leave us with so i'd like to go back to the point you made right which is compliance culture and a risk first mindset now we believe 
having the luxury of talking to a lot of our customers, learning from our customers, learning from large enterprises. It's very important for enterprises to have a compliance first culture, but they need to operate at an elevated level of a risk first mindset. And we also believe, right, with organizations being able to operate at that level, they can not only survive this complex landscape, but they can also thrive in this landscape, right? So really, the motto is for companies to be able to thrive on risk. Well, excellent. Where can people find you? So they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm quite easy to find on LinkedIn. Also, reach out to me through our Metrics Stream website. Now we do have a robust media and a press office, so we are uh, happy to take queries and respond to questions through uh, those channels at Metrics Stream as well. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Really appreciate you coming on and have a great week. Likewise. Thank you, Jacob.